And the music got quieter. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hometown Daily. Season 2, episode 352 for November 18th, 2023. Today we're going to be discussing a Chinese company promoting running, a snake eating a frog artifact, a fan theory of Stranger Things, U.S. Steel sold to Nippon Steel, continued cantaloupe conversation, AI used to prevent layoffs? Bah! How about green shipping corridors that gain steam? Har har. And business models relying on government funding. Finally, we're going to add on two science-y related things. Well, a lot of it is actually science-y. Science to watch in 2024 and lab on a chip. Let's get going. Hello, everybody. I am Mayor Watt. That is hometown.com up. Up there, right up there. Up here? Up there? Ah, right there. And look at that. Bold and blue. The sentient AI's visualizer. We're kind of captivated right now by watching the uh, live stream from Iceland and the Grindavik yep. well, community. You want to say hi? Sorry. Say hi to everybody. Good evening, hometown citizens. Pick up that can. No, I'm sorry. Hey, um, so there is a huge fissure in Iceland right now. Well, I mean, probably not in the grand scheme of things, you know. Global plate tectonics and whatnot. I'm sure that there's been bigger over the eons, but... This is a almost three kilometer wide fissure. When you look Which, at it, I don't think that's even a large area of uh, Iceland. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, they actually detected some swelling over by the geothermal plant, and then the swelling went down, and that thing opened up. Apparently, pretty fast. So, just so you know, that area of the country, mm -hmm. not that town, but that whole peninsula is only 829 square kilometers. Again, that's including way beyond the town. So that's right. a pretty good size, I would say, in that area. Yeah. And it looks like if all of the lava that flows out of it runs south, it'll kind of take out the east side of the town. Um, but they're hoping not, obviously. But there's a rumor that it's going to run for months. And if it's at that wow. volume, that is a tremendous amount of land mass that's going to get covered up with extremely fertile soil eventually. Eventually, because that's what that stuff is eventually. In the meantime, it's hot as hell. Smoky is all get out. Sulfurish all over the place, so air quality is going to go to pot. But then eventually, you know. Oh, it's Iceland. Never mind. Mushrooms. That's true. Yeah. Tomatoes too. Oh, tomatoes and mushrooms. Oh, well, might have to open up a chapter of hydroponics over there and grow some hydroponic mushrooms and and uh, tomatoes. Tomatoes. Let's get into the news. 
You ready? I'm ready. Let's blow this popsicle stand. First article is one that I, when I read this, I said, huh, in the US, this company would probably be sued for ADA compliance and disparate treatment. A Chinese company is making its 100 workers run two miles every day if they want to get a better bonus. Pretty amazing. I cannot imagine this in the US. First yeah. of all, I think not everybody is real inclined toward exercise in the US. I think that's a fair statement to make. And secondly, I just can see the complaints now. So I've worked with many a company that had a policy of promoting being healthy in general across the board, but nothing that is tied to what basically amounts to ableist policy. So a Chinese company is making its 100 workers run two miles every day if they want a better bonus. The quote here from somebody that posted on Weibo is you'd have to run two miles a day to meet the monthly target of 62 miles. So the company wants their staff to be track athletes. The company in China really wanted to maintain its employees fitness. So it tied its employees annual bonuses to the number of miles they ran in a month. Staff have to run around 62 miles every month if they want to snag a higher bonus. It's a paper company in Guangdong, China wants to have their staff run, run to get your bonuses. It's a, a business art, a business insider article. Uh, Quan Wei, Kevin Tan is the author. I don't know if it's two different people. Oh, it's one person. Okay. So, um, but what's interesting about this is exactly what I had said. Well, what if the people can't run? Is there something? Oh yeah. There's a whole set of issues there. Right. I, I mean, what if somebody's in a wheelchair, for example? Yeah. What if I get hurt while I'm running? Um, well, one of the bonuses apparently is that if you do this for six months, you get a free pair of shoes. Pretty awesome. Oh, I thought this was a monetary bonus. Oh no, it's a monetary bonus as well as if you do it for six months, you get your monetary bonus, but you also get a free pair of shoes. Um, Guangdong, uh, Dongpo papers, chairman, Lin Jiong, yeah, I think it's Jiong, um, told the media on December 7th that employee bonuses would be determined by the number of miles they ran each month per the Guangzhou uh, daily, which is basically a newspaper in China. Not basically it is. Hardcore runners get a free pair of running shoes if they run 31 miles every month continuously for six months. So they're referring to these as hardcore runners running 31 miles. But the person that posted on uh, Waiba is saying 62 miles is like a track athlete thing. Two miles a day. That you have to be pretty damn committed to running. Exactly. Even if you can run two miles, you're probably not running it daily. Yeah. And it's 30 minutes of your life if you are committed to it, right? I mean, you have to get ready. 
then you do your run even if you're doing i mean a four minute mile is spectacular running two of them back to back means that you're pretty much you know a, a track athlete you're you're going to use a considerable amount of your time each day so 10 minute miles are pretty typical for people who aren't completely sedentary um 12 minute miles are probably more of an american standard i i, I don't hold exactly. me to that if you're if you're watching um but you know it's a time commitment and it's every day right so if you don't do it every day then you're gonna end up stacking it kind of like the nanorimo <laughs> exactly trying to do all your fifty thousand words in the last week yeah, or something that's right um come on artificial intelligence um no, I didn't do NaNoWriMo. Anyway, employees need to clock in 62 miles if they want to get their annual bonus worth 130% of their monthly salary. Staff would get an annual bonus equivalent to a month's salary if they ran 31 miles every month. So a mile a day, which that's actually doable. You could walk for a mile a day. Well, that's true. Um, and it that isn't really that hard you could walk right running you would ramp up just for the convenience of getting that done i can right, see it in less time right yep for those who could only manage 19 miles per month they would only be entitled to an annual bonus worth 30 percent of their monthly salary now this is an annual bonus not necessarily apparently your work performance isn't as important as your health performance but again they voice this as an external performance metric they don't it's not something tied to their work ethic it's tied to their health ethic go run for a mile or two every day ah <sighs> that's okay though so i don't think anywhere in here anybody says hey what if I'm in a wheelchair or what if I'm just not physically Injured, able? Or I have a chronic health condition or uh, whatever. I'm older and I can't run. My knees are blown out or whatever, right? What am I supposed to do? You know, drag my body around for two miles a day. Anyway, they, they go a little bit off the rocker there with it could trigger a heart attack, but only if you're already in bad shape and you push it beyond your confidence level so anyway the whole article ends and there's more to it so you can go over and read the rest of it but it ends with this which is just kind of perfect everybody please keep a lookout for the future of this company i believe it will go bust within the next five years another person wrote on weibo and then was immediately disappeared they weren't. Yeah, I don't that know. was not part of the article. That was not part of the article. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I went for a jog and got lost. <laughs> and got lost in the narrative. Anyway, um, it's always interesting. But I know of uh, a lot of companies that try and promote people being healthy, but tying their out of work performance to their salary just seems i don't know <laughs> a little weird i know i mean i actually like the the um impetus toward fitness right 
but I feel like this is really going to treat the employees disparately and some people are going to really want this or need this financially and are not going to be able to do this, which is going to cause other problems. Yeah, like that dude that uh, put a down payment on a pool right around Christmas and uh, was going to... Would that be uh, Clark Griswold, perhaps? Yeah, I hear that he's working. He's uh, he's changed his food additive to be a coating on Guangdong Dongpo's uh, paper uh, to extend its capabilities uh, for uh, riding underwater. You know, because it's a it's a non uh, oh, like a nutritive varnish surface or something. Yeah, it's it's a non nutritive varnish, not really uh, there for the nutrition, but. To make it more robust. I probably should just go on to the next article. Yeah, the next article is over in Hometown Daily. Archaeologists find an uh, ancient artifact with snake eating a frog-like creature. We've actually talked about this finding before, but not this artifact. This is a new discovery or a new disclosure in an old discovery that we've actually discussed twice now. They're finding new things. They turn over a rock and apparently it turns into a belt buckle or something. This is pretty fascinating. So let's go straight on. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let me throw this into the chat. Please don't anybody beat me up in the parking lot. There you go. Let me go over to the Newsweek. There we go. Okay. So archaeologists find an ancient artifact with a snake eating a frog-like creature. And the uh, article is written by Aristos Giorgio who I could probably subscribe to their newsletter and get their news and find it all fascinating because whenever I grab a fascinating article from Newsweek where it's the video by this author, right? Or this yeah. journalist. Yeah. And generally, uh, when the video matches the article, it's usually Aristos Giorgio. Anyway, um, the object, a type of belt fitting, was uncovered during metal detecting prospection, prospection, that's funny. I thought it would be just called prospecting near the town of Breklov in the South Moravian region of the Czech Republic, also known as Chechia, um, a landlocked country, landlocked country in Central Europe. Quote, exceptional, the exceptional scene that it depicts represents an important origin myth, which references the creation of the world known to various early medieval populations living in Central Europe, according to a study published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, which that just reads like Indiana Jones 101. The <laughs> yeah, Journal it really does. Of I, I love this. Uh, so the iconography is also associated with fertility myths. So let's take a look at this thing. So when you when you first see it, it looks like they're actually like somebody has painted these white blobs on there, but those are actually openings. So it's trans it's not transparent, but it's been removed. It's a metal buckle, bronze, um, and the snake starts here and goes all the way around and then curves back up, and then there is something here. They say that it's frog like. But it's basically a snake eating it from, well. It's hindquarters. 
you know the 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 old saying well you said hind quarters but i was gonna say bottoms up <laughs> so uh, maybe that's where the saying comes from bottoms up i know that it's more akin to the bottom of the cup up bottoms up but this this buckle th this is actually like open to the you know it's been removed you know cut out right um from the casting and uh yeah little rivets and it's a belt buckle apparently so that's interesting that two were found in two different countries or no yes is it more than two countries several countries have had similar if not identical um in this particular case it's almost identical so like trade and these are hundreds of miles apart apparently um so in the study researchers analyzed four of these belt ends including the one found near Breklov uh, that had been discovered in the past decade the remaining three were found in germany hungary and other locate and another location in the czech republic uh, in the region of Bohemia. So according to the study, the belt ends likely came from uh, the same workshop and or derived from a common model, even though they were found in very distant regions. Well, I mean, if you look at this, I, I don't see it as identical, but I see it pretty damn close. The only... I mean, the the snake is eating the frog. The right. positioning is looks identical. If it's not identical, it's pretty close. Yeah. Well, like it's not open as much right here between right. the snake's head um, and the legs of whatever the creature is. It doesn't look like a frog to me, man. I'm sorry. That's a weird foot on a frog. And that same kind of weird foot is right here, too. Unless it's like a, I don't know. Maybe it's a webbed foot, like a frog would have. That's what it looks like, actually, to me. But it I does look unusual. Um, yeah. But neat, neat, none the, none the, you know, all, all the same. Uh, without any, uh, you know, really in-depth uh, experience with this particular thing. I wouldn't be able to say anything about it other than, wow, I think it's pretty fascinating. I want to know more and I would really like to know more um, because interpretation tends to change as time goes on. And with more context comes that wisdom that, oh, this wasn't a snake and uh, a frog at all. It was something else. Um, but I wonder what it has to do with the creation myth, because that's what they mentioned earlier on. Um, I don't know. I don't know that much about that particular creation myth, so I'll have to look into it. It says, however, we later found out that uh, other almost identical artifacts were also found in the territory of Germany, Hungary, Bohemia. They realized that they were on the trail of a hitherto unknown pagan cult that connected different regions of Central Europe to the early Middle Ages before the advent of Christianity. <laughs> That's why we organized an international scientific team that began to deal with the findings in detail. Uh, 
Yes, the advent of religion. According to the archaeologist, the artifact found near Breklov belongs to a group of so-called Avar belt fittings, uh, fittings sorry, uh, which were produced in Central Europe in the 7th and 8th centuries. Wow, 7th and 8th centuries. 7th and 8th centuries? Huh, all right. That seems pretty Why far that afield. Surprising? Well, 7th and 8th centuries is pretty modern for the advent of Christianity, no? Oh, well, yeah, uh, particularly for one reason. Interesting, right? Right, like it's AD. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, it's exactly multiple years into AD, I should say. So maybe they created this? Uh, it's weird. It seems pretty far afield. But again, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, very deeply versed in religion. So these ornate belt fittings were an important part of the costume of the Avars and originally nomadic people who eventually created a multi-ethnic empire covering parts of Central and Southeastern um, Europe that lasted for over 200 years. The fat see, and it came and went. Uh, the fashion of the Avars was also adopted by surrounding people such as the Slavs. So, Pretty cool. And there is a, a, a bit more over there at the site. So definitely follow the link through hometown. Go check it out. And, uh, you know, follow Aristos Giorgio. But also become a citizen of hometown. It's real easy. Here, I'll show you where to click. So you sign in right there if you're already a citizen or you sign up right there. Once you have that ability to uh, become a citizen of hometown, you just click that, right? Sign in. And then right here, there are going to be some more functions. Um, I have it zoomed in right now, so you can't see the sixth um, feature, which is that sixth main category, which is that right there. Uh, but we have six categories, 50 channels, areas of focus that have a, a distinct flavor of news and information that gets categorized. Um, but then you can actually file them, save them, hide them. They never show back up in the main feed. It's pretty cool. Been using it for, uh, what, a decade now and been available for the last two years to the public um, and mass. And uh, go check it out. So at any rate, this next article is over in the continuity report. Let me throw it into chat so that you can follow it if you're in the chat. Stranger Things creators shut down, quote, it's all a dream fan theory. That is not how we're going to end the show. And there's a lot of this fan theory. The reason why I even brought this up is because this fan theory pretty much shows up for every freaking show that ever exists. You know, it's a Jacob's Ladder dream thing, or there's certain tropes that always pop up whenever somebody starts building a theory about something so stranger things creators matt and ross duffer are shutting down at least one fan theory about the upcoming ending to their blockbuster netflix series on the red carpet of the new stranger things play in london the duo went on record to metro saying that the series will not end with a reveal that it was all a dream Zach Scharf over at Variety. And that seems like one of the most overdone things in TV, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. 
it's all a dream and it's usually the reason why something makes it all a dream without the intent right right off the bat right the writing pretty much ha has to build the foundation for a reveal that when it is just a dream it blows your freaking mind because there's no way this could be a dream but when a fan pops up and says hey this is a dream sequence for every single show that pops up you just go you know what there's no way that this is just a dream you know so i don't right. buy in to that this would be all a dream so um the uh, article goes on to say that uh saying the series will not end in, with a reveal that all the dream or all the events in the upside down were just a dream one fan theory about the stranger things ending alleges all the events in the screen are on the screen during the show's run were actually just the main characters playing an elaborate and very long game of dungeons and dragons a favorite among the characters since the show's first season quote no matt said bluntly when the fan theory was brought up that would be the equivalent of that's all a dream Ross added, no, I assure you that is not where we're going to end the show. We've known where we've been going for a while and we feel comfortable with it. Hopefully it satisfies everyone. We'll see. So while the strikes delayed the production of Stranger Things 5, cameras were finally set to start rolling in January and I guess it's all going to kick off. Stranger Things executive producer and director Sean Levy told Total Film Magazine earlier this year that season five will only expand the scale of the already humongous season four. Well, right now there is a, a rift in the main town. That's how season four ended, right? Spoiler alert. Well, I don't know. And, um, oh yeah, right. You aren't privy to it. So, um, it basically looks like Grindavik. Yeah, well, not Grindavik, the the rupture that's over in <laughs> Iceland right now. That's a I'm little actually, worrisome. I'm actually watching it. Yeah, it's a big opening. It's pretty cool. Anyway, um, they talk about it a little more, but I don't want to spoil this show or you reading this. Um, they basically just talk about season four, what season five is going to be kind of like who's going to be in it all the usual actors are going to be in it as far as i can tell um but i want to be somewhat surprised and who knows if 11 is going to have any powers we'll see we'll see um that said go and check it out i hope i teased you enough to come and chat with us tomorrow about whatever uh, you uh, read over there beyond what we've been talking about cool Let's go on to the next article. I know that you don't really have anything to say about this, huh? Not on Stranger Things. Yeah. Hey, so the next article is over in the Hatch Ideas channel. A U.S. corporation, once one of the largest in the world, has been sold to a Japanese company. Quote, the best days are ahead together, except for those who are going to get fired. Because every single merger and acquisition leads to terminations of redundancies and inefficiencies. And uh, when it's overseas, all the wealth goes with it. So 
Yeah, and we're also, I think we're losing infrastructure, right? We don't, in the U.S., we don't manufacture a lot of things, and this is, this is kind of concerning. Well, this company actually, um, so this was actually one of the largest companies. It was one of the companies that was valued at a billion dollars. It was the first company valued at a billion dollars. Um, although it was very big at one time, it is half the size, if that, uh, of its former glory. It's actually been uh, beaten yeah, by other article about it. I'm right? sorry. I what? think we had another article about it recently. Uh, we've we spoke about it, but apparently this is going into greater detail. And just here's some icing on this. There are some Congress critters that are speaking out against it because it's U.S. steel. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to go over to um, entrepreneur.com. Sam Silverman is the author of this article. Um, and uh Essentially, U.S. steel has been bought by a Japanese steel maker called Nippon Steel. So you might as well just call it U.S. steel gets bought by Japan steel. Um, and <laughs> it's nearly a $15 billion purchase, but it's been declining. The company has been declining. It was first owned by Carnegie or Carnegie. Um, I think is the proper pronunciation. Then it was purchased by JP Morgan and Charles Schwab in 1901. Um, it was the first company to be valued at over a billion dollars here. They are even talking about it there. Um, and it's one of these wartime businesses where when things started needing to be done because they were infrastructure, they were tapped and billions of dollars went into the company. So unless they completely drained it unethically or immorally or illegally, this thing was going to be a juggernaut. Well, during peak war times, it hit 340,000 employees in 1943, but we were fighting a world war. So everybody was employed. <laughs> you were, you know, Rosie the Riveter, you know, everybody. Right, you almost had to try and fail, I imagine. Correct. So then it started declining in, oh, and they mentioned Nucor Steel, which has just trounced U.S. Steel. So people are really going, oh, no, U.S. Steel, it's the blah, blah, blah. But it hasn't been important since the war. It's been declining ever since. It's one third of its uh, production uh, since 1953 has declined and it's down to 15,000 employees. Why? Because not everybody had to be full employment, right? So I'm sorry. It's not as big of a deal as you might think. The biggest problem with this is that it's going to exfiltrate wealth because the subject matter expertise of us steel is going to be wholly owned and acquired by Japan Steel. Any trade secrets, optimizations, strategic advantages are now going to traverse the distance between what once was a U.S. company wholly owned and controlled, and now it's going to go over to Japan. Do I have a problem with this? Sort of. 
only because all of the domestic employees are ultimately going to pay the price and us steel and all of its inherent value will now be diluted between us steel and everything that Nippon steel makes. Well, and every, if to the extent it was doing a lot of business, right? All that revenue is not going to go to the U S anymore. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and while it's going to pay the people, it's going to exfiltrate the wealth to Nippon steel <coughs> as it should, because it's owned by Nippon steel. If, if, right. if the U S doesn't want it, they should block it and then find somebody to buy U S steel. Now here is the thing that really is annoying me. They're going to stay named U.S. Steel. Can you think of a reason why? <laughs> uh, not really. Because if you change the name from U.S. Steel to Nippon Steel, buyers domestically aren't going to be consuming U.S. Steel. They're going to be buying oh, wow. Japanese steel. And you know how people are nowadays, apparently. If it isn't made in America, even if it is made in America and it's made in America, but named Nippon steel, companies aren't going to buy it. They're going to go to Nucor. So following the news of the sale, us steel jumped 28% in pre-market trading, but this is basically buying, hoping that the speculation, this is the problem with yeah, either. Well, it depends on what your trading style is, but if you're going to be buying this, hoping that it's going to go up, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> if you're going to go for the King, aim for the head, that kind of thing, this mm -hmm. could collapse because there's going to be so many policymakers that are going, you know, I don't like this. I don't like this. This is an infrastructure thing that we're trying to keep in house. Yeah. But I guarantee you, you know, I'll, I'll put this on, I'll put this on my monitor and I will watch this and you'll see us steel start to downsize, consolidate. I'm willing to bet 3000 people will be fired next year. Ouch. Yeah. So while I don't have a pro I sort of have a problem with a domestic company selling to overseas. Um, couldn't there have been somebody locally that would purchase it? If it's valued, right? I mean, I guess that goes back to your earlier point. Yeah. So why wouldn't uh, Nucor buy it? Uh, that's a great question. Right. Probably because Nippon Steel said to U.S. Steel, we'll pay you a premium because we know we're going to make our money back and we have a much longer range aspiration than just the immediate next quarter, which domestic companies seem to have very little <laughs> long-term vision. Um, it's more immediate generally. Anyway. Um, thought it was an interesting article and definitely you should go and check it out. There are people right now that are kind of ranting about this, this sale.
ultimately I can only imagine uh, yeah uh, ultimately I'm a little bent out of shape about it only because mergers and acquisitions lead directly to people losing their jobs just like Hasbro fired 1100 people right before Christmas and the, and the only thing worse than a layoff is a layoff at and the, the CEO yeah the CEO I think got a bonus of three or eight million dollars so yeah you you can't sit there and complain about uh unemployment or not having the skills and all of that kind of stuff and then you allow mergers and acquisitions to take place i mean people have to when it something like this happens why isn't there somebody domestically that wants to purchase this it has to have an, some inherent value right you'd think so and that seems like a quick and easy way to expand your footprint or your assets or so yeah. that to me is kind of a red flag yeah to me this seems like it would it was a backroom deal discussed you know hey if you pay us enough you know we'll uh pitch it to our board and to our investors and everybody goes yeah okay because 15 billion dollars is a truckload of money to say no to Oh, that's true. Okay, let's keep going. This next article is over on Hometown Daily. Hospitalization surge after cantaloupe recall. Hey, we've been talking about this for a while now. And uh, I find it quite fascinating that it hasn't declined. It has only increased. According to the CDC, 129 people have been hospitalized, four deaths have been reported, three in Minnesota, one in Oregon, 42 states are now involved. <laughs> wow. What happened to those other states? They don't like produce. Yeah, really. You know, it's just Wyoming. Um, so uh, amid a cantaloupe recall, hospitalizations across the U.S. continue to rise as the fruit is tied to a salmonella outbreak. Since October, the Centers for Disease Control has reported several hundred people have been infected with one of the outbreak strains of salmonella. The situation has been tied to cantaloupe, as many of the people have fell ill, reported eating pre-cut cantaloupe in clamshell packages and trays sold in stores. Now, <laughs> um, I know of two people that have had pre-cut cantaloupe and both of them are sick from the same source. Uh, that's a little concerning. In in short order from consumption. So federal and state officials have been investigating salmonella outbreak linked to cantaloupe from Mexico since November. Consumers have been urged not to eat any pre-cut cantaloupe unless they know where the whole fruit came from which is pretty damn hard to do. I know, are you really gonna like walk to the farm and then uh, go, okay, did you uh, pick this from this row and then package it here? I mean, we know yeah, that's- Or you go to a restaurant or you buy, you, you get something from the store and you have to already be aware of it and then start like rooting around. You have to do investigative journalism if you eat it at a restaurant. Uh, from a store you can actually look at the packaging i haven't purchased any cantaloupe from a store since this article came into existence 
Uh, not this article, but the entire story. So the earlier batch yeah. of them, yes. More than a quarter of the year ago. Um, so the report states that of the 263 people with information available, 129 have been hospitalized and there's been four deaths. Um, three from Minnesota and one from Oregon. Now, if you look at the history of this, this is probably going to lead to people who were already immunocompromised um, and or didn't seek medical attention when they were feeling wonky. And it ramps up as time goes on. So um, it's typical that you don't get like a sore throat and stuff like that. So don't freak out if you had cantaloupe. Um, but there are other signs and uh, you monitor it so when you uh, suddenly feel like you are growing an outer husk and um feeling round then you might be infected Is with that a, the test <laughs> a sa salmonella from a cantaloupe um if you feel if you're feeling seedy uh i'm sorry i'm trying to make light of this I hate when i'm feeling seedy yeah so anyway, uh, if you feel like you're sick, uh, go see a doctor and they can test you for this kind of thing. Um, yeah, Texas, Arizona, California, Minnesota, Utah, Missouri, Illinois, Ohio, and New York with 10 to 26 people sick. Pretty much every state has somewhere between one and five. And then it just kind of, there's hot spots in various places. Um, they describe the container and basically it says this follows other cantaloupe recalls. Um, on November 15th, Sophia Produce LLC, which operates under the name True Fresh, recalled all sizes of cantaloupe, fresh cantaloupe, with the labels uh, Malachita and Rudy. Um, in early December, Cut Fruit Express initiated a recall of cantaloupe chunks and mixed uh, fruit mixes containing cantaloupe. In addition to TGD Cuts LLC, launched a recall of specific fresh fruit cups, clamshells, and tray products that contained cantaloupe from the company True Fresh. So, yeah. And some of the symptoms are right here. So, if you have... GI stuff, gastrointestinal distress, then, um, and it's ongoing thing. You get cramps and fever. You feel like you're going to launch a cantaloupe, then, uh, go Too and get checked. Oh, and finally, the article actually says what I said earlier in various serious cases, it can be fatal, particularly among elderly children and people with compromised immune systems. And by children, they mean young 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 children like not, infants yeah not those with a healthy immune system um so just if you did eat cantaloupe in the last week and you're feeling a little wonky it might be something that you might want your doctor to poke and prod you about although you might have to fill a container hey i'm gonna leave that alone see ya uh, the next article is over in hometown daily plot twist consulting firm Deloitte is reportedly using AI to prevent layoffs. What? This is intriguing. I feel like this is the opposite direction of every other AI employment article we see. And it's probably still taking jobs. Deloitte is using AI to potentially shift existing employees into new jobs. So it is costing jobs. 
They're just shifting them over to something else. Hey, AI can do what you're doing. You are now uh, gonna be, uh, I don't know, mopping up stuff in a biology lab. Um, anyway, the move could, maybe they're moving people over to do research on salmonella poisoning from cantaloupe. I hear I mean, it is maybe a, that would be a worthy cause. It is a growing industry. Uh, the move could help the firm stave off mass layoffs and balance new hiring growth. Deloitte is one among several consulting firms figuring out how to deal with new hires. So the rapid advances of AI will bring about significant disruptions in the labor market. Well, look, it's 847. No shit news. Hey, woo woo. We got no shit news. Lakshmi Varanasi is the author over at businessinsider.com. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to find something in this article that stands out as being more interesting than just the headline. The firm is essentially making a bet that AI will not only help it avoid mass layoffs, but also moderate its hiring growth in the coming years, Bloomberg reported. Hey, you know how you stave off AI taking over jobs? You no. don't let AI take over jobs. <laughs> what? It's not like AI is the new hire and it's like, hey, screw all of y'all. I can do all of your jobs. Get out. Hey, have you heard what Mayor Watt said? If I can turn your job into a series of steps, you're a freaking AI. Say bye bye to your job. Yeah, that's not how it works. You, Deloitte, you are the one that's in. Or is it Deloitte? Is it Deloitte? I think it's just Deloitte. Deloitte? Yes. From now on, I'm referring to it as Deloitte. I don't know. I've always pronounced it Deloitte. I've heard people say Deloitte. But it's like Ubisoft versus Ubisoft. You can't win. Whatever pronunciation you use, somebody's going to think it's incorrect. I'm not from this planet, folks. I live in hometown. Anyway, it's obviously a great objective to be able to avoid large swings of hirings and layoffs. Stephen Rolls, global chief talent officer at Deloitte, told the outlet. And the firm has already started using generative AI tools to eliminate repetitive work like hirings and layoffs bloomberg said uh, actually that's not what bloomberg said they didn't say anything about hirings and layoffs at the end of that sentence <sighs> this segment's getting complicated anyway the increase in productivity from ai could increase could increase may boost s p okay did an ai write this did a drunk uncle ai write this okay yes Yes. Anyway, productivity from AI could boost S&P 500 products, uh, profits by 30% or more, according to Goldman Sachs strategy, a Goldman Sachs strategist. Deloitte's move to retain its employment. Wait, I got an error message from the AI, uh, uh, from the sentient AI. Uh, did you want me to, was that a hot S on the De Deloitte? I'm not sure. At this How should point. I pronounce it? <laughs> Deloitte. 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 
The firm brought on 130,000 new hires this year after 2022 saw the highest rate of new hire growth in a decade, according to figures from Bloomberg. Meanwhile, revenue growth just hasn't kept in pace per Bloomberg. Deloitte is uh, also among several consult consulting firms figuring out how to deal with their new hires. All of those AIs, man. Uh, at firms like Bain, Boston Consulting Group, and McKinsey, new MBA hires have had much work and are anxious about all the idle time they have. New MBA hires have had much work? And then it says, and are anxious about all the that idle time? That doesn't make any sense. This damn article was written by somebody other than Lakshmi Varanasi. I can't really say that. I don't know. But I can tell you that there's some really weird sentence structure here. It's AI. Maybe the AI edited the article. Um, I believe it's pronounced edited. <laughs> Let's just move on. Have you ever heard of green shipping corridors? <clears throat> no. That's a question I'm asking the AI. No? Okay, we'll talk about it here. So technology today is the category that this uh, article was ensconced in. Green shipping corridors gaining momentum. I would have gone with gaining steam, but that's okay. Ports around the world are investigating its green fuels to allow cargo ships to sail carbon free. And that's what it is. Green shipping corridors are uh, supply routes where there aren't any fossil fuels used. So how is that possible? I don't know. Hugs, bubbles, goodwill. Lots of I love yous. No, I don't know. So they're not actually moving then. I, I, I apparently they're using fossil fuels that are renewable fossil fuels or I, I I'm really curious myself, you know, like it's green diesel and stuff like that. Um, I don't know if this person's name is Jorn Madslin or Yorn. But there we have it. Anyway, um, they are the uh, author of this article over at BBC.com. The powerful diesel engine roars as the water taxi cuts through the choppy water that connects Rotterdam's gritty port areas to what remains of the city's historic maritime grandeur. The same dock where I once said, hey sailor, when's your boat dock? <laughs> Just kidding. Gritty, gritty port areas. That's where I used to hang out. <sighs> this, is, this is so gonna end up the one segment that uh, <laughs> gains me attention. Exactly. Uh, anyway, the 122-year-old building, one of a few to survive the extensive bombing of Rotterdam in World War II, was originally the headquarters of Dutch shipping company Holland America Line. The firm's name is still adorned on the front of the building in large letters. Right there. You can barely see it, folks. Here, let me see if I can zoom in. So, there it is right there, Holland America Line. Um, but let me tell you something about this article. It goes on and on and on for a little bit before it even gets to green corridors concept which was born at cop26 the global 
Environment Summit held in Glasgow, uh, um, Scotland in 2021, called the Clydebank Declaration and agreed to by 22 countries, including the UK. It included a commitment to create at least six corridors by the middle of this decade. Now, they don't tell you what I don't think. I scanned through this. Ammonia gas. By fusing hydrogen with nitrogen, it is called green ammonia if the hydrogen is produced using 100% renewable energy. Meanwhile, methanol is a form of alcohol that can be produced with green energy. So they're basically talking about all of these facilities and everything leading to zero or low emission fuels so that ships can travel along these corridors. So I guess I'd ask, what's the byproduct of all these alternatives? Goodwill. No, a higher cost. It'll save the planet, but it's going to cost an arm and a leg. Um, and people are going to go, well, we're green. So everybody now has to pay more. And during a time where everything is astronomically more expensive, you know, upwards of 50% more expensive in for things, for everyday common goods. Ah. <sighs> So Lin Lu is the chief executive of the Global Center of Maritime Decarbonization, a body that promotes the move to green fuels in the industry. She forecasts that ammonia production could double or even treble. Treble. By 2050. That's the fancy version of triple. Somebody, somebody must know a lawyer. Um, Ms. Liu says there uh, needs to be a dramatic rise in the number of vessels capable of transporting ammonia from the 200 that are on the water today. The thing about this, though, is there are some serious accidents that can happen around ammonia and ammonia production. Um, I recall a couple of them happening. I think it was in Africa somewhere. I, I'm just not really. Ammonia is no joke, man. There's some. I don't know. Um, so it says here, but ammonia may be the least challenging. The first ammonia engines will be delivered to shipyards by the end of 2024. And we aim to be a commercial supplier of low emission ammonia within the next few years. So now we're going to have ammonia engines plopping around. I'm sure that the we'll first see. major tanker that's ammonia fuel powered is not going to have any sustainable or any long-term impact on the environment that it contaminates. I mean, it's got to be better than diesel. But I would agree, but that doesn't mean it's without impact. So they say here, yes, today fuel is che uh, fuel oil is cheaper than hydrogen and ammonia, but that doesn't mean it has to be so in the future. Yeah, well, the people who say that it's this cheap are going to be the ones that actually own the technology. And so ammonia and hydrogen will end up being the same cost as fuel oil because regulatory capture means it's only going to be owned by the people who do it, who do the old fuel system. And thus they're the price setters. That's why the economy is the way that it is. When the source of the material jacks up the price, <laughs> that's what sets the, the trend for inflation. Yeah, nobody needed to raise their prices. 
even with the infusion of capital into the system, nobody needed to raise their prices. The only reason why people raise their prices is because we have this mindset that you can't leave any money anywhere. If it's sitting in somebody's pockets, you have to jack the price up because somebody will want the product and thus have the money to pay for it. Supply and demand doesn't need to be bound by the fact that there's money on the table. So let's jack up the price. But I keep getting told this by economists that the supply and demand curve is basically built off of somebody producing a good and somebody wanting that good. Yes, right. I understand but that. But I still think we're way beyond that with the profits. And, and psychologically, if you produce a good, let's say you produce 10,000 of them and people buy all 10,000 of them and you go, God, I should have produced 15,000 of them. Produce 5,000 more and people will buy them and you're making profit. You don't have to go, well, we sold, we made 10,000 of them and people bought them all instantly. And because in this day and age, if the product is wanted, people will buy you out entirely. Look at the PlayStation, look at the Xbox production was high and all of them were scooped up to the point where you couldn't have them until the market was sat uh, saturated. But what That's ended true. up, but people purchased them all and then sold them on the black or gray market, you know, aftermarket, raising the price up even beyond what you were selling at MSRP. So let people have the money, satiate the supply or the demand um, curve, the, the demand line. I mean, it, it's not necessarily a curve, but anyway, satiate that demand. You're making money off of every sale because you, you are applying the juice, right? But don't sit there and jack the prices up. You, we need to figure out a way to stop greedy bastards from buying up everything. And then because it's now artificially constrained because a couple of D bags have 5,000, 5,000 Xboxes, um, they're raising the rates and they're selling it on eBay and other places, you know? We got to get out of this right. as a society. We got to stop thinking. I think the bastard. only way we can do that is we actually penalize or um, make illegal some of these actions, which I can't really see that on the profit margins, but at yeah, least on the like multiple purchase. Right. Uh, Good luck. People create bots so that there's fake accounts and blah, blah, blah. And they still do it because people are greedy bastards. And I hear people right now already saying in my head, you know, I hear this all the time because of what I do. I hear this all the time. You know, who are you to tell me how many I can buy? I am the change I want to see in the world. You should change from being a greedy bastard. All right. So I skipped that article and, uh, I should probably throw it into the chat. I did my transition because I wanted to be all pithy and move on, but whatever. 
Hey, the next what article's happened? over in... I'm sorry? It didn't work. what happened. <laughs> what, do, what do they call that when you have a really good joke, but not until... Or a comeback, and but not until after you're on the escalator? Oh, like L'Esprit de l'Escalier. I don't yeah. know if that's pronounced correctly. Spirit yeah. of the Staircase. Spirit of the Staircase, yeah. So you uh, basically come up with a good idea, but not until you get home. Or a good comeback, you know, somebody says something and you're, that's what I should have said. Damn it. Anyway, the next article is over in hometown daily. Millions of Americans poised to lose primary transportation because bus companies like Greyhound have been closing or relocating a swath of depo depots in recent years. And it's because nobody's using them. Nobody's paying for them. Government subsidies are drying up. So done. And because they've run their business model off of the idea that the government is going to pay for it. There you go. So Thomas Kicka over at newsweek.com put this article together. Made uh, So uh, millions of Americans are at risk of losing key modes of transportation in, as inner city bus depots. Pardon me. Um, closed down en masse in many cities due to rising operation costs and loss of government funding, among other reasons. So made up of companies like Greyhound, Trailways, Megabus, intercity bus lines offer transportation options between cities that have be become heavily relied upon by many Americans commuting long distance for work, et cetera, et cetera. So here's the thing. Profit motive in a city for public transportation should not exist, but the company that I should say the, the community should have pride in their public mode of transportation and fund it in a way where it doesn't constantly decline. I know it's shocking. Well, it is. And of course, all these are private ventures. So then you wonder what are the cities doing locally? Right. But the profit motive, people are being made richer. And that's the problem here. You can't have a public transportation with private desire for profit unless the way that it works is and i know how budgets work in public enterprise and private enterprise i've been on both sides of the gate i've got no problem understanding the mechanics here the, but the problem is that again we need to change the way we think about these things because you can't have public transportation with a private profit motive and then when the government funding dries up, the for-profit motive wins and they start closing down or consolidating. And then they raise rates. If they don't get money from the government, they close up shop. Well, we still need public transportation because not everybody wants a car or can afford a car or blah, blah, blah. You know, I know that if I'm in, you know, well, depending on which town I'm in, um, I want to be able to hop onto a bus if I'm traveling and, and not worry about having to get an Uber or whatever else, taxi and whatnot. Just hop on the bus. Boom. Down. Um, right, you know, Andy, like, um, not expensive. Yeah. Um, and sometimes even free you know, DC, Washington, DC has little commuter funded by the, the, the city, well, funded by Washington, DC, 
um, and uh, it, it runs around and you hop on and get dropped off pretty much, you know, everywhere. But they're doing it right. But when you make a private company, the benefactor of profits beyond and then, you know, dries up, you're done. So primarily driven by Greyhound, but encompassing the entire industry, inner city bus depots have already been shuttered in major cities like Cincinnati, Charlottesville, Virginia, Houston, Louisville, um, Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, Tampa, among others. Yet more depots are set to close in places like Chicago and Dallas. Roughly 60 million people are estimated to be at risk of losing access to inner city bus services. pretty rough I mean, that's that's problem right because like other things it's going to have a disproportionate effect on lower income households yep people trying to get to work people trying to visit family yep or just people that are trying to use public transportation instead of adding to the burden of the road and got the ecology factor and environmental issues and you know some people just don't want to drive they want to sit there and read a book for four hours while they commute from one place to another and let somebody else deal with it around 75 percent of travelers who utilize inner city bus services make forty thousand dollars or less and would not be able to make the regular trips if such service were not afforded so obviously this is a socioeconomic burden um and this type of commentary doesn't really address the profit taking it addresses it basically calls out to the cities hey you need to fund these and their rising costs and not treat the citizenry as if it's a burden when it's public transportation it is a benefit to all of society because you never know when you might need a bus. And I'd rather have the option than not be able to take one if I need it. Especially when your EV runs out of charge. I mean, you need to have that backup. I'm looking at you, Wyoming. Let's you know, going. I wonder if this is going to be a unique to the U.S. problem. Because the U.S. has, for the most part, poor public transportation options. There are right. some exceptions. Other places have much better planned out public transportation, accessible, etc. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we can noodle around with this and see if there's other countries and cities that are dealing with this outside of the U.S. Shutting down public transportation. It seems shocking to me. Um, but honestly, our cities are pretty expansive right the carbon footprint for our cities are pretty broad they're sprawling yeah um and so i think that it's harder to like i've been i've been challenged with well if we if a country like that can do it over there even though it's much smaller why can't we do it over here and i'm like well because we have a different context it's just vastly different the cost of it in that country is you know, pennies to the dollar, pennies to the uh, pennies. I mean, it's it's a fraction of the cost in that other country. But here in the United States, you know, it's billions of dollars to do something. 
So the context really does matter. So I would love to still find out. I mean, because I've done this kind of research before, particularly about prisons in the United States and in you know, Nordic countries don't seem to have the same dilemma that we have here in the US. Um, like using prisoners to as producers of goods at fractions of a penny. I actually left one place because they did exactly that, but they didn't disclose that there was potentially personally identifiable information that could be remembered by the people that were interacting with this uh, prison population. It's the context is a little bit more <laughs> involved and I don't really want to get into it, but uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. So now that company's gone. So anyway, um, let's go on to the next article. Uh, the next article is over at uh, greenogram. Let's look at the science events to watch for in uh, 2024. Uh, they say here in this little snippet that's provided by nature, um, advanced AI tools, moon missions, and ultra fast uh, supercomputers are among the developments set to shape research in the coming year. Um, the article is by Miriam Nadef over at nature.com. Um, and it's really just a big list. So let me do this. Let me throw the URL through Omtown over in, over into the chat and uh, we'll kind of go through this, but there's no way that I can go through the entire thing. So you'll have to just follow the link through hometown. Um, they talk about AI advances with the rise of chat GPT, a new version of Google DeepMind. Um, I, uh, Gemini is another one at Google's G GPT-4 um, competitor. And uh, then they start talking about regulate regulation of AI, the United Nations high level advisory body on artificial intelligence will share its final report in mid 2024, laying down guidelines for the international regulation of AI. And guess what? Nobody's really going to follow those. Well, exactly. Cause they're just going to be guidelines and it's going to be self-regulated and it's going to be, Oh, Yes, this company is, but there's a shadow company, government agency or whatever, that's working on an AI that's going to kill us all. Well, right. And there might be like one country that's like, yes, we should follow all these and another one that doesn't, which yeah. then means. North Korea, yeah. China, they're not going to give one wit about this. It's always the same refrain though. Well, you had your ability to reach your glory, so we should reach ours. However, we do it too, right? You know, <sighs> aiming for the stars. An observatory in Chile is scheduled to begin operating some of its instruments towards the end of 2024, ahead of its planned 10 year survey of the entire Southern hemisphere which I think is amazing. Also in Chile, the Simmons universe, uh, sorry, observatory in the Atacama desert, which I believe we spoke about probably last week sometime, um, is set to be complete in mid 2024 and next generation cosmology experiment. will look for signatures of primordial gravitational waves, the afterglow of the big bang. <laughs> There's a joke there. Never mind. Um, anyway, 
uh, weaponize mosquitoes. We do this periodically. You modify mosquitoes to do a certain type of thing. We'll see if it actually happens um, and does what it's supposed to do. The World Mosquito Program will start producing disease-fighting mosquitoes at a factory in Brazil next year. The mosquitoes are infected with a bacterial strain that prevents them from transmitting pathogenic viruses and could protect up to 70 million people from diseases such as dengue and Zika. Yeah. I mean, this sounds positive, but I have to say bad, bad. <laughs> yeah, definitely have to smack that bad mosquito out of somebody. Um, and what ends up happening is because they're, they may, if they bite, they don't transmit. Right. And they don't bite. They just pierce. But anyway, the point is that and if anything mates with them, the offspring is supposed to carry the same genetic modification. So they, too, won't kick the dengue or Zika until it wobbles. They wipe out dengue or Zika unless it evolves. Right. Right. Yeah. Theoretically. So but then. The idea, I mean, this would be short circuiting nature in a, in a major way. So what's going to happen when the mosquito itself wobbles out of phase with. That's exactly it. Now there is a huge spike in uh, dengue right now. Yeah. So the timing is good, but we'll have to see if it's actually effective. The other thing that's odd about this is just thinking about a factory producing mosquitoes <laughs> i'm picturing a bunch of them on an assembly line yeah really and like a stamp chink, chink, mm -hmm. chink. you walk in there and it's really really loud but it's nothing but these little mosquitoes sorry you got me thinking i gotta stop uh beyond the pandemic as the world moves past the emergency phase of the covid19 pandemic um, there are funding trials of three next generation vaccines. Two are intranasal that aim to prevent infection by generating immunity in airway tissues. The third is an mRNA vaccine, boosts antibodies and T cell responses, uh, promising to provide long lasting immunity against a broad range of SARS CoV 2. Um, uh, variants by the way there's research that's showing that there is a decreasing response to um vaccinations for covid now oh, that's um, not good yeah meanwhile the world health organization is due to unveil final drafts of the pandemic treaty during the 77th world health assembly in may 194 who member states who now we're the talking band? about i'm sorry the band yeah the band which one of you is who um then we're going to be going to the moon we'll find out for sure if it's aliens or not illuminating dark matter they're trying to figure out a, about the missing amount of mass that exists in the universe dark matter particles known as axions will see light in 2024 axions are thought to be emitted by the sun and converted into light, but the tiny particles have not yet been observed experimentally because they require sensitive detection tools. I keep talking with the AI about this. There are things that we just don't know yet. We think we know that they're there. We don't know that they're there, even though 
you know, it, it is the thing. Um, but it's like the known unknowns. Oh gosh. <laughs> How prescient that has actually been, right? There are known knowns, there are unknown knowns and there are unknown unknowns. <laughs> I think there's more to it and I can't, I can't remember it right now. I but, do too. Right? Yeah. In 2024 could be the year scientists nailed down the mass of a, of the neutrino, the most mysterious particle in the standard model of particle physics. We'll see what happens with that. Researchers will finish collecting data in 2024 and are expected to make a definite measurement of the tiny particles. So that won't happen. Um, and then the consciousness debate round two next year will bring new insights into the neural basis of consciousness, a large project that is testing two theories of consciousness through a series of adversarial experiments is expected to release the results of its experiment by the end of 2024 with the first round. Both theories failed to completely align with observed brain imaging data, settling a 25-year bet in favor of philosophy over neuroscience. Yeah. You know, I think both uh, Sheldon Cooper and Amy Farrah-Fowler will be pleased with the experiments being run in 2024. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there, it's supposed to be coming back. You know, Big Bang Theory is supposed to be... Right, Reborn. there's supposed to be another show, but we don't know the details yet. Yeah. If it isn't at the same... Never did I realize... Like, I watched the entire series when it first ran, um, but never did I say to myself, wow, this this series pivoted hardcore. But at the... Season 11 was dramatically different than the previous seasons, and uh, now we're in season 12... Um, so it'll be interesting to see relive the, that show again. So, um, saving the planet, they're talking about plastic, um, super fast computers. They're talking about researchers are going to switch on Jupiter, Europe, uh, Europe's first exascale supercomputer. The gigantic machine is able to perform one quintillion computations each second. Researchers will use the machine to create a digital twin model of the human heart and brain for medical purposes and to run high resolution simulations of Earth's climate. Coming to the same conclusion that it is a simulation with a simulation is going to be quite interesting to find out in 2024. They're going to simulate the simulation. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what could happen from that. It's just going to implode. Junk. Okay, let's go on to the last article for tonight. This one's a Gnometown Daily. We've seen this before, but uh, not in this way. Um, I've talked about labs on chips before, but this is lab on a chip may offer made to order medical testing. So a new lab on a chip can be 3D printed in 30 minutes. That's usually what the problem has been. The manufacturing process has been too delicate, too precise, thus too costly. Well, with 3D printing technologies basically becoming more and more capable, you now have the ability to 3D print in just 30 minutes. The breakthrough in diagnostic technology has the potential to make on-the-spot testing wildly, widely available, and I say wildly, because now you can actually 3D print your test with all of the stuff in it, go out to the field and do your test in, 
right there in place and not have to go to a lab for for instance uh, because the chip itself will be able to tell you if it's positive or negative because each chip could actually be made to order for that specific so the lab on a chip works through capillary action the very phenomena by which a spilled liquid on the kitchen table spontaneously wicks into paper towels used to wipe it up it's the same thing about uh straws to the where you get that little lip of uh, liquid when you're looking through a transparent straw you see that little curve um, that's similar to capillary action there's actually um, a capillary based pump now that doesn't use any electricity simply because of the ion differential between the liquid inside it and a spiral of material going around this nanotube um, it actually contracts like a pump and pulls water through or a liquid through it i saw this recently uh, in another place and i think i talked about it um, here but I, I find it really fascinating technology that it doesn't need any power it just does it on its own so this lab on a chip though is a breakthrough because of the ability to do on the spot testing um here let me zoom in a little bit so you all can see it better um the so chip... is that better for um if you're in an environment where you don't have lots of facilities yep absolutely uh, etc yep traditional di diagnostics require peripherals our while well, ours can circumvent them our diagnostics are a bit what the cell phone was to traditional desktop computers that required a separate monitor keyboard and power supply to operate at home testing became a crucial um, device in in covid 19 uh, pandemic era so these rapid tests have limited availability and can only drive one liquid across the strip meaning that most diagnostics are still need to be done in central labs notably that capillaric chips can be 3d printed for various tests including COVID-19 antibody quantification. So the study brings 3D printing home diagnostics one step closer to reality, though some challenges remain, such as regulatory approvals and securing necessary test materials. The team is actively working to make their technology more accessible. This is a problem though. Um, regulatory approvals typically take years, almost a decade, typically, and securing necessary test materials means that there are catalysts that are needed to process something that goes inside these um and without them this is nothing it's a doorstop you know well a small doorstop but still a doorstop and so if they don't get the supply chain down for their raw materials and they don't get regulatory capture then well not even capture permission i should say um, then it's all for naught. So, but I think that this, the, the fact that it only takes 30 minutes to print one means that this is going to be fast tracked, um, because right now there's other issues with other means of processing, <coughs> but if it's an all in one test and it can be automated, you inject the materials and then all you do is plop the sample in, it's a win. I'm so sorry. I for think this coffee. is quite brilliant. Like, I really think this could change um, accessibility yeah. to medical medicine. testing. Yep, yep. Uh, Keila DePop McGill, I think, 
um, is the author. And um, it's over at futurity.org. Sorry, I didn't say who it was from before. <coughs> I'm so sorry for the cough. The air is dry right now here in hometown. There you go. There's the uh, last link in the chat. So everybody get in the party bus. I'm going to have to hurry. I'm going to start coughing again. We always drive down Main Street. I don't know if anything in here is worth talking about. I'm not going to hit refresh um, because I don't know what's actually going to show up. This is something that really sucks. <clears throat> Apple Watch ban because of a patent problem. Yeah, that's so. going to be interesting. Yeah, they're getting pulled off the shelves right before Christmas. It is so what much it is. for their profits. Yep. Um, and that's it, folks. We are done for the day. I am Marwat. That is hometown.com. Up there is the line of the visualizer for the sentient AI. You want to say goodnight? Good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern. Have a good night. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Mm -hmm.